Heavenly Father, we recognize that we live in a world and a time and certainly a place where unity is hard to find, and when we do, it's not lasting. We are so thankful that we can begin this new year, 2022, with a focus on our unification with you in Christ and the call that you have for your children to be unified one to another. Not only that we might be blessed, Father, and experience the joy and encouragement of working together as a family for your glory and for the gospel, but so that we might be the best testimony possible to this community and this culture which knows no true rest in community with you. And so I ask, Father, that you would be gracious with my brothers and sisters who have gathered here, uh, those who will listen later, as we look again at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Be gracious, Father, to enable us to see not only the purity of the gospel that was set forth, but the radical unification it brought to the church then and the church today. Uh, We want to be in accord with your word We want to be a people that live in accordance with your word. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring this great unity to pass. Uh, We know that in our sin nature, we are prone to to move away and to disconnect. And I pray, Lord, that you would do the exact opposite. Um, We pray, Father, for unification here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. I pray for unity in all the true churches here in the South Bay, in this country, and throughout the world that 2022 would see us united for Christ in purpose, in desire, and we would see many come to a saving grace as a result. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for our blessing. It is a, an amazing treasure to be part of a community of believers, uh, but we ask it above all else for your glory, that you would magnify the power of the gospel and the love that Christ has for us in our unity with one another. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I guess I'm supposed to say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Blessed New Year. I pray that, I, pray that, I mean, we're at day two, right? So if you're, you're already struggling and it's only day two, we're in trouble. It's going to be a long haul. I pray that's not the case. I pray that you're excited about 2022, your relationship in Christ, and what he will do through you this year. Um, it's an amazing thing that we're actually able to gather still this morning on the Lord's Day and, and worship. And I pray that we don't ever take that for granted. Um, so if you remember last week, we, we, we did a, a one-week Galatians chapter 4 looking at the incarnation. I tried to tie it in because Galatians was written in the context of the Jerusalem Council. And so I wanted a little bit of connection there. But we're going to go back to Acts 15. If you're not there, open your Bible. We left off right in the middle of the council, right in the middle of their, their prayers and their decision-making process. Um, and they were trying to answer a question that had to be answered not only for the future of the church, but for the unity within the church. And they were trying to ask, what question? If you remember, what is required of the Gentile in coming to a saving grace and then coming into the church? They were really asking, what, what is the, the essence or the purity of the gospel itself? Um, did they have to be circumcised? Did they have to submit to the laws of Moses? Did they have to become Jewish first before they became a Christian? These were the questions that were being asked. And, and we've seen now for weeks the Holy Spirit starting in Jerusalem and then working out to Judea and Samaria. The gospel had gone out and, and tens of thousands of Gentiles had become believers. And then we tracked Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey as they left Antioch of Syria and they spent two years sharing the gospel and planting churches in the Galatian province. And so we're at this point now where all these Gentiles are, have made professions, and they're in the church. And so some of the, the Jewish Christians made their way up from, from, um, from Judah up to Antioch of Syria, where Paul and Barnabas had returned. And if you remember, they were telling everybody up there, the gospel's good, it's gospel, but it's gospel plus what? Gospel plus circumcision, gospel plus the laws of Moses. And so Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 that's not, that's not the message, and that's not what we've been preaching. So Paul and Barnabas and Titus and others, they travel from Antioch and Syria down to Jerusalem and say, we got to get some counsel. Literally, we got to talk to the apostles, we got to talk to the elders, and we got to talk to the church in Jerusalem to get an answer to this. 
What is the true gospel? What is the pure gospel? Um, and they needed that answer not only because if we don't know what the gospel is and there's, there's no clear way that we can know that we're saved, and in the context of the church, if we're not secure of what the true gospel is, then the church would be fractured. There wouldn't be unity in the body of Christ. They couldn't move forward. Now, just some years after the Jerusalem Council, the Apostle Paul would write this to the church in Ephesus. Listen, he says in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and there is one Spirit. And so Paul, in fact, the entire New Testament says, Christian, listen, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ into a body. You're united with Christ by one Spirit in one body. In other words, if you live in disunity, you're, you're living contrary to your new standing in the Lord. And so Paul's talking about that, and certainly the council in Jerusalem was getting that, to make every effort to pursue unity. Now, why make every effort? Because it's hard, right? We are, our sin nature is prone to disunity. It's prone to isolation. If, you, if you're married, you know unity in a marriage takes effort. Unity in the classroom, unity at the workplace, it takes effort because we are always wanting to do what is best or what we think is right in our own eyes, usually not thinking about those around us. But when unity in truth and purpose is achieved, and when it's achieved in God's church, when, when believers like us can gather together and experience true unity in the Spirit, oh, there's joy, there is encouragement, and we become a very, very powerful testimony to a world that does not know unity and cannot know it apart from Christ. So in light of all the disunity we've seen these past couple years, and there's been much, even within the church, um, as we start 2022, I thought how great it would be if we said we coveted this year to say, all right, members of Cambrian Park Baptist Church, we're going to fight for unity here in this church in this time, and we're going to strive to be even more unified in 2022 than we were in 2021. And we're going to do that because we want to see God glorified. I, we want, I want the blessings and the encouragement and joy of being unified. And we want to be the most brilliant testimony we can to the world. And so from this passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to see that we are called to be unified under God's revelation, under his word, unified through God's community, that's here, and then unified from God's grace. Okay, so unity under God's revelation, unity through God's community, and unity from God's grace. The theme of the sermon is simple. Listen, if God made us one, we should live as one. If God has made us one in Christ, and that's what the Bible says, and we believe the word of God to be true, then we ought to live as God has made us. Otherwise, we're pushing against him and our new creation in Christ. So point number one, unity under God's revelation. Unity Theologically speaking, would be oneness in belief, oneness in sentiment, oneness in practice. As a body of believers, we want that. We want to be on the same page in what we believe, our sentiments in what we believe, what we practice, what we believe. We want to be on the same page on that. Now, unity in and of itself is not always good. And we've seen that most recently when groups gather together in unison to smash and grab from major retail stores like Nordstrom's. They're unified in purpose. But we would say that that purpose is evil and not glorifying to God. When the sons of Jacob were unified in selling their brother Joseph into slavery, they were unified in purpose, but it was not pleasing to the Lord. Unity that is pleasing to God, listen, must be grounded in the truth of God as God has revealed himself through history and in the Bible. If we want to be unified as a church, then we want to be unified as God has revealed himself in the historical record and according to his word. Look at verse 13. After they, they being Paul and Barnabas, after they had finished speaking, if you remember, they had talked about the great work the Holy Spirit had done. After they had finished speaking, James, that's, that's the brother of Jesus, by the way. It's an amazing thought that the brother of Jesus came to a saving grace and now he becomes a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. James replied this, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And so James stands up, Peter had already spoken, Paul and Barnabas had spoken, and James says, listen, there's ample testimony here. 
Peter's already told us how he was called to go to Cornelius' house. He shared the gospel. They repented. They believed. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and they spoke in tongues. Indisputable fact that the Gentiles had been saved. And then Paul and Barnabas had just given their testimony that for two years, they were, they were moving around the Galatian province, sharing the gospel, planting churches, and many were being saved and baptized and added into the church. In other words, James is saying definitively, listen, look at verse 14 again. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name, for his name's sake. Now that's, that phrase in the Old Testament is always used of Israel. Always used of Israel. And that James comes along here and he says, listen, it's an undeniable fact that God is adding to Israel. He's growing his family. People taking a people for his name, centuries Israel, and now Israel will grow, right? We're still children of Abraham according to the promise which is given to us in Christ, but Israel will no longer be the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will include all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So James says, listen, we've got to be unified in what God is doing. We can't be Jew and Gentile in the church. God's obviously working with the Gentiles. We want to be unified in our understanding of the gospel and the work that he's doing. But James just doesn't play on the historical record. He says, look, it's also in the word of God. So he goes to the word to substantiate everything Peter and Paul had just said. Look at verse 15. James is speaking, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, verse 16, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so James says, listen, it's obvious that God is saving Gentiles. Peter's testified to that. Paul and Barnabas have testified to that. We have thousands of brothers now throughout the empire that know the Lord, and they're not Jewish. And so what does he do? He quotes an Old Testament prophet. He quotes Amos chapter 9. Now, if you know your old prophets, Jamus is, um, Jamus. <laughs> Amos, James is talking about Amos, is an 8th century prophet. He's, he's uh, colleagues with Isaiah and Hosea, same time prophesying to the, the future destruction of both Israel and Judah. He said, you're going to fall. Both of you are going to fall. So this is prior to that. But he also predicts that both kingdoms, look, he says, will rebuild and restore the tent of David again. In other words, Israel and Judah are going to fall. They're going to be in a state of ruin, but God's going to come back and do what? He's going to rebuild the kingdom of David. In fact, this was the promise that was made to David um, about a thousand years before Jesus in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his descendants, one of his descendants would sit upon a throne that would be everlasting. Listen to the promise God made to David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. God said, I will raise up your offspring, David, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? Forever. Now, of course, we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. He is the Davidic king, right? He's the one that the Jews have been waiting centuries to come. Well, he had come, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he restored that kingdom. But it wasn't a kingdom like David. It was infinitely more grand. Look at, look at verse 17. God said, this time, this kingdom, I'm gonna rebuild it in such a way that the remnant, that word, by the way, in the Greek can also be translated rest, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. In other words, it's no longer Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the descendants through that bloodline. It'll be through the bloodline of Jesus Christ that this kingdom of David would be built and established for all people and all places at all times. In other words, this rebuilding process would be infinitely more grand than the Jews could have ever imagined. The rest of mankind, given the opportunity to what? Look at verse 17, to seek the Lord. All of mankind, given an opportunity to seek the Lord through Jesus Christ. So James takes the testimonies of Paul and Peter and Barnabas, and he takes the word of God, and he calls the entire church to agree to it. They said, well, let's be unified on this. This is what God is obviously doing in our midst. We can't deny it. This is what God has obviously prophesied to in his word. We can't deny that. 
And therefore, let's be unified on what the gospel is and live as one people, not Jew and Gentile, but one body in Christ. In other words, he's saying the gospel is going to be by grace through faith in Christ alone, not circumcision, not the laws of Moses. We're not going to attach anything to it, not race, not gender, not education, not success, not family name, but instead the church was to stand together on the pure gospel of grace. And so what James is doing here, he's calling the church to be unified on this. And he says history and God's word demand it. And in other words, it wasn't optional for the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch or the church in San Jose to disagree. We don't have that option in Christ according to the word. My beloved, being united in Christ, we ought to want to stand together as one family, as one body. This is what God has done to us. This is what he's revealed in history. And the reason it's so difficult, even more so today, is because we, we live in a culture, many of whom deny that God even exists. Well, you take God out of the picture, and you're going to have difficulties being unified on anything if God is not the great unifying force for us. Without a personal communicative, someone who's communicated, transcendent being, all truth claims become what? They become relative, and they must become relative. If you can't attach a truth claim to God the Creator, then your truth claim becomes relative. The atheist, for example, who believes that murder is wrong for all people in all places at all time, who makes a universal absolute, he can argue it because he may say it's beneficial for mankind, that it's helpful for social structures to flourish. He may want that because he doesn't want to be murdered himself. But he cannot argue that it is objectively wrong because for the atheist, there is no eternal law giver. There is no absolute morality that comes from above, right? The atheist said we are matter plus energy plus time. We are dust. And therefore, no lawgiver, no law, no conscience, no foundation for morality. I would say there's no foundation for real love either if we don't have a God that all this is attached to. And therefore, something even as binary as murder, which has been against the law in most cultures throughout all of human history, even something as binary as murder, the atheist cannot hold on to because there is no God in which to ground that morality in. The Christian, on the other hand, we say, oh, of course murder is wrong for all people in all places at all time. Why? Because God is life. And God created us in his image. And he has decreed formally that we are image bearers and therefore there is sanctity to human life. Therefore, if you take a human life, it is murder, it is wrong. So we can agree because God has made himself known and he's made his law known. The world cannot. Christians can be unified around the objective eternal truths of the word of God because God has made himself known. We know his character, we know his nature, and we know his laws because he's told us in great detail. So we can agree, my beloved, on a myriad of things as Christians. We can agree that work is good. How do we know that? Because God worked and created all that is seen and unseen. And then he gave us, before the fall, the opportunity to work too. So we can agree upon that. We can agree that rest is good. Why? Because on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested and then he called us to rest too. We can agree that loving our neighbor is good, regardless of how hard it is to love your neighbor. And some of you have very hard neighbors to love, right? Maybe you're one of those neighbors that's kind of hard to love, right? But we can, we can agree to this absolute. It is absolutely right for all people in all places at all times to love their neighbor. Why? Because God is love, and God loves you, and you're a very difficult neighbor to love. He loved you by sending his son to pay for your sins, right? We can agree that lying is wrong. Why? Because God is truth, and he created you in his image to be a truth bearer, not a liar, and we could go on and on. In other words, the Christian can agree on every major doctrine and every major practice and exercise it in great unity in this disunified world because God has made himself known in history through his word. If there's any people on this planet that can be unified, it is the church. It is Christian. What a powerful testimony to 
a world that does not know unity, that we can actually live and love and serve like this together. Complete strangers from very different backgrounds, saved by grace through faith and brought into this family, living and loving and practicing our faith by being unified in the love of God. So when we struggle with unity, my beloved, it's not because we don't have a unifying God. It's because we don't want to submit to it. Very simple, right? If we are disunified, it's not because God does not unify us or tell us how to live. It's because we don't want to. So the first thing I hope we see is that we are called to be unified under God's clear revelation, who he is and his word. But what does it look like in practice? And there there are several that the scriptures offer. I'm just going to give you one because I want to stay in the context of the text. One practical way we can fight for unity is by how we love one another. Point number two, I hope you're still with me, unity through God's community. So unity under God's revelation, unity through God's community. So in light of the council's decision, right, they, they came to this conclusion that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, no circumcision necessary, no laws necessary, let's not add anything to it. So what was the response that they gave to their sister churches in the Gentile regions. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is, this is James speaking now on behalf of the elders and behalf of the church. James says, my judgment is that we Jewish Christians should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so he, he basically reiterates what Peter, the rhetorical question Peter already asked in verse 10. Remember in verse 10, Peter said, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Now, most of you know a yoke was used on an animal. It was a piece of wood with iron harnesses, and it was usually put on an oxen and used to get them to work, right, to, to do what they wanted them to do. James calls this yoke trouble. James is saying we should not trouble them. We should not, literally it means we should not disturb their faith. Their faith is real and it's genuine. It's in Christ. Let's not rock their faith. By doing what? By adding old covenant rituals. Do not touch ceremonies, symbols, adding to the free gospel of grace. So James says, listen, here's the conclusion. We're not going to add to the gospel. You're saved freely by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. You don't got to get circumcised, and you don't have to submit to all the, the rules and regulations under Moses. But as soon as he finishes that thought, he then lists four things the Gentiles should abstain from that were all under the old covenant blessings. So if you're reading this correctly, you're saying, wait a minute, James, you just said we don't want to trouble you, and now you're troubling us. Look at verse 19. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, verse 20, but we, speaking now of the church in Jerusalem, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So if you're a bit confused, then you're reading it correctly. It sounds confusing. James says, on the one hand, let's not trouble them with old covenant requirements. And then he turns around and says, oh, by the way, abstain from things that are forbidden under the old covenant. What is going on here? Are they confused? Are they sending a contradictory message? Or is there a principle here that James is establishing early in the church that is obviously taught to in the New Testament that we want to live in accordance with? I believe it's the latter. I don't think they're confused. The Jerusalem councils under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. James testifies to that. And they're establishing this basic principle that if the church understands it and follows it, it will promote radical unity amongst the believers. It has, for those churches who have gotten it for centuries, created unity in the community that have flourished for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The principle was actually articulated by Jesus in Matthew 18 in the negative, but you'll get it once I read it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to quote. It's in Matthew 18, but Mark 9 is a little better. Mark 9, verse 42, Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones, he was, there was a child, children there in his presence, but he's talking about the church, those who believe in me to stumble, and then he said it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I don't know if you've ever seen a first century Mediterranean millstone. Uh, they, they could range anywhere from three to six feet in diameter and about that thick made of stone. Uh, if that's tied around your neck, you're not swimming. All right, you're going straight to the bottom. 
All right, so Jesus gives this warning. He says, don't cause your brothers and sisters to stumble because Christ wants us to be what? Unified, united as a body of believers. Don't cause anyone, even the littlest of his, to stumble in their faith. And that's the principle that the Jerusalem Council is establishing here in Acts 15. To the Jews, James said, don't impose your culture. To the Gentiles, He's saying don't abuse your freedoms. Jews, don't impose your culture. Gentiles, don't, don't abuse your freedoms. Look, let's look at the first one. James says to his fellow Jews, don't take our culture and our traditions under the old covenant, which have no bearing under the new covenant, and slam them onto the Gentiles. Don't make them submit to that which they've been set free from by the blood of Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't cause them to stumble by adding to that which is not in accordance any longer with God's word. Or what? Better you have a millstone tied around your neck. Or Jesus said later, better you've never been born than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's a severe warning. That's, that's a big deal, right? It's not like, oh yeah, we'll try. No, you, we need to really try because of the warning that Christ sets forth. Now, I would argue that every culture for 2,000 years of the history of church has tried to take its, its culture, its idiosyncrasies, and slam it into the gospel and put it into the church. We, we do that, right? And, and we do that as Americans. If you think, well, we don't have it here. We have it right. Well, you're not so right, historically. Um, the, by the fourth century, when the church became universalized in the empire under Constantine, you had lots of people that wanted to join because now it was officially sanctioned by the state. So there it was profitable, literally, to be part of the church. And so you had tens of thousands of people wanting to join. So what did the church do? The church said, wait a minute, we want true believers in the church. So, so they stepped back and they made the catechism process to get baptized. You think we have like a six to eight week course here before you can join the church and get baptized? Seven years. Seven, three to seven years as a, as a catechumen to make sure that you were qualified. Well, that's taking culture, people trying to get into the church, and putting it in the context of the scripture and really breaking unity in the body of Christ. Uh, centuries later, the Quakers, who believed in the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit, they denounced the authority of pastors and churches altogether, and they came out of the Re Reformation rejecting the practice of baptism, both for babies and adults, and the observance of the Lord's Supper. In other words, they took their cultural moment and they, they worked it back into Scripture. Not a good thing. Um, my beloved, we're, we're not much better. The American church, especially in recent years with our so-called cancel, cancel culture, oh, we've attached so much to Christianity that has nothing to do with Christianity or the gospel. We say that we're saved by God's grace through faith plus what? Patriotism. You better be a good American. Saved by grace through faith plus you better be a Republican. Saved by grace through faith plus you better be against higher taxes. You better have an education. You better have a career. And we do this implicitly. We don't preach it, but we do it. I was looking for a gift for one of my sons. And as I was scrolling looking for this gift, I, I ran across this banner. It was a flag, actually. And it was a flag of Jesus Christ, black and white Jesus Christ, head was bowed, he was bearing the crown of thorns, and he had this image of anguish on his face, face, and he was holding an American flag. And it said, under one nation, God, under one nation, we trust. And I thought, and it made me kind of go, oh, wow, wow. So we're attaching a crucified Christ with the flag of the United States. That's, that's culture in the gospel. That's culture in the church. Um, lately, some in the evangelical camps have gone the other direction entirely, and they're attaching things like critical race theory and the social justice movement and even communism to the gospel. They're arguing that Jesus Christ was the first communist. My beloved, he was not. He was not. That's bad theology and bad economics. He was not. Um, all of these additions, when they make their way into the church, they not only convolute the gospel message, as we saw it taking place in, in Jerusalem and Antioch of Syria, but it, pro it pro promotes disunity in the church. I mean, how, 
if you're, if you're not a Republican, how are you unified with a brother if that's attached to the gospel, right? Um, we are to hold fast to the word of God, and we are to hold each other accountable to the word of God. But beyond that, when we add culture or politics or personal opinions to the gospel and then expect others to adhere to it and then judgment, judge them if they do not, well, you're guaranteed to have disunity. That's putting a yoke on someone else's neck. That's causing trouble in someone else's faith. And Jesus said, better a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the deep sea. Don't do that. My beloved, hundreds of thousands of believers over these past few years have switched churches or left churches altogether over disagreements pertaining to the COVID vaccine. To get or not to get? Double vax, triple vax, booster, no booster. Unity was broken over a vaccine. Well, I guarantee you that that's hateful to God. It's hateful to God. We must be very, very careful not to impose upon our brothers and sisters that which is not taught clearly in God's word. Now, at the other end of this, this is what makes this decision so beautiful, we're to be very careful not to use our freedom in such a way that we cause others to stumble too. That's why the council added the four restrictions. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 20. The four restrictions on the Gentiles. We're not going to trouble you, but by the way, abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. In other words, you see what the brilliance of this? In order to keep the peace in these churches, verse 21 tells us that these churches were filled with Jews and Gentiles. So to keep the peace between Jew and Gentile, James is now saying to the, he said to the Jews, don't impose old covenant regulations. And now he's saying to the Gentiles, don't live in your freedom in such a way which will fracture the peace within the church. Don't do that. And he listed four particular things that would have been particularly offensive to the Jewish Christian in the Gentile church. He lists them. Number one, he says, don't eat any food that had been sacrificed to an idol. That was an abomination to a Jew because that food had become what? Unclean. They said, don't do that with your brothers. They said, don't, don't eat any animal that hadn't been strangled, that had been strangled instead of bled out, so the blood was still in it, and that's tied to the other one. Um, don't eat any meat with the blood in it. Blood for the Jew was sacred. So if there was blood still in the meat, and he's saying the Gentiles, don't order your steak rare, right? Don't, don't do that to your brother or sister in Christ. The fourth one was not to commune with anyone engaged or affiliated with sexual morality, um, all these come from Leviticus 17 and 18. In fact, they, they always apply to the Jews and they always apply to resident aliens, Gentiles, living in the Jewish populations for centuries. So these were not new. But what James was saying, what the council rendered was, for the sake of what? For the sake of unity, Gentiles practice these things. You've been set free from them. You don't have to abide by them. But for the sake of unity, do. Now, with the exception of sexual morality, and that's always been forbidden by God, all the other ones, the, the Jews, the Gentiles could say, but these don't apply to us. And they didn't. But the council was not sending a mixed message. They weren't saying, we don't want to trouble you, but we're going to trouble you. They were saying, we don't want to trouble you, and at the same time, guard the unity of the church by not causing your Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. Guard it. That's how important it was. Then and today. He said, don't add... The gospel, to the gospel, your cultural preferences, and don't, Gentiles, don't use your freedom when it will cause others to stumble. Now, this is not just in Acts 15. It was clarified here, but if you read through the New Testament, you're going to see this constant drumbeat of being careful not to cause a brother or sister to stumble for the sake of the gospel and unity in the church. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 14. He said, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Not one. Make up your mind to do that. Then he says in verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, do not by, by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. And so for the Jews, they would really struggle with that. How are you going to have table fellowship when you're sitting across from someone who's eating a piece of meat that is rare, barely cooked? How are you going to do that? And you say, well, you know what? This, we, don't, we don't even deal with the dietary regulations. What? 
What does it matter to us? The principle remains the same. And Paul clarifies this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Listen, he's talking now, he's talking in the context of eating, but everything now. Be careful that the exercise of your rights as a Christian does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So if, if you know Christ, you have been set free from all the do not touch, do not taste, do not handle Colossians 2 restrictions. You've been set free from that. But just because you're set free from these things doesn't mean you can just practice them without concern for the spiritual well-being of those that are in your church. In other words, the spiritual well-being, now listen closely, my Americans who love their rights, the spiritual well-being of a brother or sister in Christ supersedes your freedom in Christ. It supersedes that. So if you're going to talk about something you're free to do in Christ and you're going to consider your brother who it might harm, that brother's well-being in Christ is to supersede that freedom, whatever that freedom may be, whatever it may be. In reform circles where doctrine and Christian freedom often go hand in hand, many scorn the idea that you have to give up a freedom in Christ in order to care for a weaker brother. And those denominations and those churches who have done that, it's come at the cost of unity in the church. People have left the church because the Christian will say, it's my right in Christ. I'm free in Christ to do that. Of course you are. But are you caring about your brother? What impact will it have? So for example, you may be free to have a wine, a glass of wine for dinner. You may be free for that in Christ. I believe the scriptures teach that you do. But if you have a brother or sister over for dinner and that brother or sister struggles with alcoholism, it might not be good for you to practice that in their presence. Hmm? And if you demand it and it hurts them, is that love? No, we would say not. Ladies, if you are healthy and you have no weight issues and all your blood panels come back great, well, you're free to have that second dessert. You are. But if you're sitting across from a sister in Christ who is struggling with weight, it might be wise for you not to have that second dessert. Maybe not even have that first dessert. You say, I find that so binding. Well, I hope not. I hope that you find it glorious in the expression of love for a brother and sister. We don't want to cause them to stumble. If you, for example, were received a Christmas bonus this year and you go around talking about it to brothers and sisters, not to glorify yourself, but maybe to glorify your employer for being so gracious. Well, be careful with the person who's just struggling to make ends meet. They can barely pay their bills and you're talking about your Christmas bonus. Are you free to get that bonus? Well, of course you are. But it might not be good for your brother or sister to hear you talk about that. My beloved, for the past two years, as I've talked about this in a few sermons ago, we've seen tens of thousands of Christians leave the state of California. Let me be clear, the Christian is free in Christ to move to another state or city or church, but it doesn't mean the Christian should. Of course you're free to. There's nothing in Scripture that says you can't. You have to live in California. But some higher questions would be required before an action like this would be taken. Number one, will my departure bring unity or disunity to my local body? That's a simple question. Will it bring unity or disunity if I leave? Will my departure cause my brothers or sisters to stumble in their faith? Will there be a hole in the church relationally or ministerially because I've left? If I'm leaving for a more comfortable, conservative life, will it cause my brothers and sisters to covet the same? Maybe. Maybe. In some of the dialogues I've had with pastors, they're talking about it with this, uh, I want to go too. Well, that's not, that's not encouraging. And that's not bringing unity. The unity of the body of Christ must be a real, not just a said, it must be a real priority for every true believer, without exception. Unity is a priority for you if you're in Christ. And if it's not a priority for you, then I want to encourage you to listen and grow in that area. That means every believer who's serious about honoring Christ will work hard not to cause a brother or sister to stumble not by adding to the gospel or exercising your freedom in such a way that you don't care how people respond to it. You'll work hard for the unity of Christ because Christ has made us one. And that is pleasing to our Lord. All right, so we're to fight for unity under God's revelation. He's made himself and his rule, his law clear. We're to fight for unity in the community by not causing brothers or sisters to stumble in any way. And lastly, and I'll close, unity from God's grace. How do we get unity from God's grace? 
verses 22 to 29, I'm not going to exegete line by line. It's a recap of all the discussion that's just transpired going all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. So the, the council says, all right, here's our, here's our conclusion. We're going to write a letter from the church, from the elders and the church in Jerusalem. We're going to send it to Antioch and to Syria and to Cilicia. And we're going to send it with Paul and Barnabas, but you know they were in the controversy from the beginning, so we're going to send some other people too. We're going to send, we're going to send Judas, Barsabbas, and we're going to send Silas. And we're told in verse 22, these were leading men among the brothers in Jerusalem. We, we learn about Silas later because he partners up with Paul, so we know that. So these were men who could be trusted. They could go with Paul and Barnabas and substantiate the, the council's ruling and bring forth additional teachings. They could explain it and elaborate on it. And the letter would stipulate the abstentions we already talked about. No food to the idols that had, had, not, that had been strangled, no blood, and sexual immorality. And then the council's desire. Look at the latter part of verse 28. The council's desire to what? lay on the Gentiles no greater burden than these requirements. No add-ons to the gospel. The pure gospel was the pure gospel. No circumcision, no laws of Moses. They made two important clarifications. First, they separated themselves from those who had gone up from Judah and started teaching a gospel plus. Look at verse 25. It said, since we have heard that some persons have gone out, they, I'm sure they knew who they were. Some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, gospel plus words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. He said, listen, the false gospel you heard, gospel plus circumcision, gospel plus Moses, that's not our message. We didn't send them. They're not representing us. So they want it to be really clear this was never part of our understanding of the gospel of grace. Secondly, though, they emphasize their total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, those four restrictions. In other words, they're saying, listen, we, we prayed, we studied, we debated, and we have concluded this in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Right? So this, the Jerusalem Council's judgment was a Holy Spirit conclusion. They're saying this is not just us, this is God working through us. So the question is, what was the fruit of their pursuit of unity? Because that's what they were trying to do. They needed to clarify the gospel. They did. But they were also trying to promote radical unity in the church, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia, between Jew and Gentile. What fruit did it bear? How did the Gentiles respond to the message they received? Look at verse 30. So when they, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and so the Antioch of Syria, and they gathered the congregation together, and they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they, the entire church in Antioch, did what? Rejoiced because of its encouragement. So we don't know how long it took, but travel time was long. I'm sure the council took some time, probably a month, two, three, who knows. But they were waiting, right? They're waiting for a response from Jerusalem. They had been they had been taught a salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone from Paul and Barnabas. They thought they were in. They thought they were saved. They thought they were inside the church. And now they're, they're waiting here now with bated breath as to what the response was from Jerusalem. Is this true? Were we misled? Do we really have to be circumcised? Do we have to follow the laws of Moses? And so they gather the church together and they read the letter and it must have been music to their ears. Right? No undue burden, no yoke of works righteousness, no trouble added to your faith. Your faith in Christ is what? It's sufficient. It's sufficient. In other words, they were saying the gospel that you believed in, that you heard Paul and Barnabas preach and teach, it's the right gospel. It's the true gospel. They're saying that you, if you've professed your faith in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven, you've received his righteousness, and oh, by the way, you're already in the church. You're already a son or daughter of God. You're already an heir to the kingdom. There's nothing else for you to do because Christ has done the work for you. In other words, the church now stood on paper and hopefully in their hearts and minds, they were of one accord on what the gospel was and what it meant to become a member of God's holy church. And the result was joy 
and encouragement. You see, I look at verse 31. And when they had heard it read, they, the church, rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced over it. That word rejoice in the Greek, it literally and properly means to delight in God's grace, to experience God's grace. They were delighting in the fact that the shed blood of Jesus was sufficient. They were delighting in that. They had been told that. They believed it, and it was true. They were delighting in the fact that they had, in that moment, been completely forgiven of their sins. That God saw them now as sons and daughters, righteous and holy and beautiful. They were delighting that they were already in. They were in the kingdom of God, and they were in the church, even though the Judaizers tried to cause confusion and trouble for them. They were delighting in the fact, no doubt, that Christ had completed the work for them and there was no more work for them to do to be saved. They could rest in the grace of God. They were delighting that God had made two people groups at odds for centuries. One, that he had, through the gospel of grace and the love that was poured out on the cross, he had made them one new family in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus for those who know the Lord. And you know what they didn't do? They didn't, did you know, they didn't grumble over the restrictions. They didn't say, oh, we're free. Oh, come on. I got to do, I got to do that. I got to, I got to make sure that, you know, the animals that I eat have been bled out completely and I got to change, you know, my steak orders now and I, I, if anything's been sacrificed to an idol, even though it Paul says it means nothing. I, I can't eat from that. They didn't grumble over it because they understood that, that this was an opportunity to love sacrificially. And so they were rejoicing in the supremacy of brotherly love. They were encouraged, no doubt, by this divine calling to put the spiritual well-being of brothers and sisters over their freedom in Christ. They rejoiced. They rejoiced over these encouraging words in the letter because they knew the pure gospel of grace coupled with a practical love for one another would promote unity in the church. A solidarity in the church that would not only enable them, listen, to grow in their faith, their love for Christ, their love for one another, but be a tremendous testimony for the entire world that does not know what it means to be unified. They knew that. They knew that this gospel would gather together people from every different background and create a community that would be a living testimony to the gospel of grace and the power of God to save. The real, present, life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ manifests in the family of God. That's what the unity would present to make what? Strangers into brothers and enemies into friends. Right? That's what the gospel does. We were all at one point in time complete strangers. Right? We were. And now we're brothers and sisters. I don't know if we were enemies at one time. I hope not, but maybe we were. But now we're friends in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A unified church, my beloved, listen, is one of Satan's greatest enemies. You know that. So the skeptic can stand outside and the skeptic can, can scorn at the word of God and they can, they can mock our history and they can mock the cross they can mock the doctrine and even our practices. But one thing the skeptic cannot deny is the supernatural expression of God's people living and acting as one. They cannot deny it because we become a living testimony to the power of Christ to do that. When people come together as one family, as one people, we live together, we love together, we serve together, we sacrifice for the well-being of one another, even at our own expense. Well, that's not what the world teaches. And so they see this, and they know there's something distinctly different. There is no worldly incentive. You know that for such a gathering as this, my beloved. There's no worldly incentive for us to do this. No temporal motive that can explain a true church united in the gospel of grace. It must be the love of God. And it must be through a crucified, risen Savior. It must be. So our passage ends with Paul and Barnabas staying in Antioch and they're continuing to teach and preach the now what? Undisputed gospel of grace. 
Undisputed gospel of grace. Judas and Silas, after encouraging the church for some time, they head back to to Jerusalem and we're told in verse 33, they're sent off in peace. Why? Because there's no longer discord. Jew and Gentile, all brought into the covenant community through the blood of Jesus Christ. One body, one family, one spirit, one Lord. They're sent away in peace and they're able to return to Jerusalem and say what? All is well. The church is united. All is well. My beloved, let us covenant together. Let us covenant together right now that we will strive to be an even more unified church in 2022. Let's covenant. Some of you make New Year's resolutions. Let's make a New Year's covenant together this morning that we will strive for greater unity by one, working really hard to grow in our understanding and practice of God's clearly revealed word together that we will strive together to understand to know what god's word really says and then live in accordance with it as one body let's do that and number two let's have a right care for one another let's work hard not to cause our brothers and sisters to stumble let's not impose upon them that which the word does not and then judge them in our hearts and minds let's not use our christian freedom at the expense of the well-being and faith of those God has saved by the blood of his son. Let's covenant to that. The pursuit of these, of striving for unity, it is pleasing to the Lord. It'll bring joy and encouragement into this church. If you've ever been part of a, a unified group, you know what that's like. But as a testimony to the world, they cannot refute it. And how glorious if Cambrian Park community and our family and friends knew that there's something supernatural here by our unity and love for one another. How glorious if that were be, would be our 2022 as a church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've inspired the authors of the New Testament through the Holy Spirit to write these things down because unity is hard. In our flesh, we fight against it. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with your children here in this church, that we would see the importance of it, the beauty of it, the joy that comes to us from it, and that you would make 2022 the most unified Cambrian Park Baptist Church has been in the last 69 years. How amazing, Father, if we could see as we celebrate our 70th anniversary this year If we could say we've never been more united in our love for Jesus, in our purpose, in in the sharing of the gospel and the making of disciples, I ask that you would do that, Father, to bless us. We want that blessing. We want that joy and encouragement. Do it for your glory so that we might be a brilliant lampstand for Jesus. And we're so thankful, Father, for for 70 years of, of this church being here. I pray you give us another 70 times 7. Until Christ comes again in glory, Father, enable us to continue to faithfully live out, preach, and teach the gospel of our Lord and Savior. I ask these things in his name. Amen.